series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 21 in that series. And this message is entitled, Following the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be looking at a small section here, verses 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. So chapter 8 opens with three instances of miracles that Jesus performed as messianic signs. And these are the first specific miracles that you encounter in Matthew's gospel. Now these are certainly not the first miracles that Jesus worked. And at this point in Matthew's account, if you look at the chronology and harmony between the gospel accounts and such, um, this is during... Uh, what is sometimes referred to as the Galilean ministry of Jesus, the, the second year um, of his ministry, also sometimes uh, referred to as the year of popularity. Um, Matthew has two um, emphases here at the beginning of chapter number 8 in these miracles, and that is to emphasize authority and faith. So Jesus' authority is, is particularly demonstrated as he heals and sometimes he will do so with touch but not always and uh, most often the the emphasis falls on the words that Jesus speaks that he expresses his will for them for the healing faith is also emphasized that particularly comes out in the account of the centurion there um, and the healing of his servant now most of that passage which is a good portion of the opening part of that chapter and and those three uh, miracles together. Most of that passage dealt with the words of the centurion uh, uh, explaining his understanding of Jesus' authority. And Jesus responded to that by saying he had not found such great faith in Israel, meaning that this Gentile Roman officer had a better understanding of who Jesus is than so many of those in Israel who had heard his teaching and seen his miracles. Now, following those miracles, Matthew punctuates here with a, uh, just a brief exchange between Jesus and two would-be followers. Now, it's interesting that Jesus had spoken about not finding great faith in Israel, and now we read about these two um, half-hearted followers, presumably Israelites, uh, certainly the scribe was. Not just, it's not just interesting, though. It's, it's also not the only connection with the account of the centurion um, in this passage. So this brief exchange also features the first occurrence of Jesus using the title Son of Man in Matthew's Gospel. Now, in the New Testament, this title is used almost exclusively by Jesus or those quoting Jesus' words. This title has deep roots and heavy significance from the Old Testament. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time tracing the meaning of this title, the Son of Man. 
Um, But in the end, in this passage, we see that following Jesus is not quite what these two, and we would have to say many today, think that it is. So you want to look at this passage, the first um, would-be disciple in verses 18 to 20. And we see that most likely he is wanting to follow glory. And in verses 21 and 22, we get the second, and he seems to want to follow convenience. So we'll start here with the beginning in verse number 18. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. Now, Matthew, again, here is emphasizing that that there were large crowds, and these crowds were continuing to follow Jesus, and, and Jesus acknowledges it. Um, the implication is, is just that they keep on following him. They keep on crowding around him wherever that he has gone. And he also adds here that Jesus commanded to go to the other side. In other words, he commanded um, his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. They're, uh, they're in the region, the northern uh, part, northwestern part of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And he's commanding them to go to the other side of the lake, which would have uh, involved a a boat trip or a a much longer um, walk to get around. And it it seems subtle. It's one of those kind of places that's so easy to just read it and to not really think about it. But the word that is used here for commandment, he gave commandment. He commanded them to, to go to the other side. The word that's used here means that he gave an order. And one of the, um, one of the probably um, top lexicons today, the BDAG, um, notes that this word was ordinarily used of commands of an official nature. And a form of this word is used uh, in Acts chapter 25 and verse 23, referring to a command that Festus had given, and Festus was then um, the governor of Judea. So it, it, it is a command, it is an order, it is a directive that is issued, again, ordinarily in some sort of official capacity from a superior to inferiors. So it's, it's easy to overlook this, but once again, Matthew is giving us an expression of Jesus' authority, and it's highlighting that Jesus, what Jesus means or what following Jesus means is obeying his command. And that is certainly important in this very passage that we are looking at. Verse 19, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now we have seen scribes referred to earlier in Matthew, at least a couple of times uh, they've been referred to, and they'll certainly continue to be featured and referred to as, as we go through the gospel. Um, the scribes the, referred actually to a, a profession. Um, the scribes were the copyists of the Old Testament. So by trade, um, they hand-copied the manuscripts of the Old Testament. And scribes primarily belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, but, but not all of them. And the scribal profession was one that was an upwardly mobile profession. In other words, 
there were paths of advancement from being uh, a scribe, you know, sitting down um, at a table with, with the parchment and the, and the quill and hand copying um, the, the Old Testament manuscripts over and over and over again. Um, it, it, it was uh, a job that had the opportunity for advancement. So um, those scribes that, that did this work, due to the nature of the work, they were viewed as experts in the law. And I'm sure they, they came to know um, passages just word for word as they're copying um, them, who, you know, who, who knows how many times. Many of the scribes would go on to become rabbis, to become teachers of the Old Testament in the synagogues. They could also continue to advance and become rulers of, of synagogues. Uh, they could become lawyers, doctors of the law. Uh, some would gain a seat in the council of the Sanhedrin. They were oftentimes um, brought in as um, expert witnesses or expert consultants when some particularly difficult matter had to be decided upon. In fact, uh, it, it was one of the ways that a lot of the rabbinical traditions developed as they were trying to take difficult cases and to look at the Old Covenant law and to see what the Old Covenant law said and, and how that it would apply in this case. And, and then over time, those traditions and, and customs began to be taught as the law itself and, and so on. But so the, so the scribes, this, is, uh, this man that came was one of the scribes. Now, we're not told what his particular position was. So at what point along this path of advancement was this particular scribe? We don't have any idea. Um, but at this point, when you think about it, Jesus hasn't faced a lot of open opposition. There, there's been some grumblings. There, there are some disgruntleds out there at this point. But he hasn't faced a lot of open opposition. Certainly not people plotting to kill him just yet. And so this is, again, the year of, of popularity. And he will face this opposition later, but as of now, he has a large following. So this scribe comes to Jesus. He addresses Jesus as a master, or um, didaskalos, it's uh, a teacher. Um, it, it was a term of respect. He expressed his desire to be yoked to Jesus. To, when he says that he will follow him whithersoever he goes, he's not just saying, you know, I'll literally walk behind you wherever you go. He's saying that, that he will take him um, as a master. He'll take him um, as a mentor, as a, as a teacher. He will wants to be his disciple, to accompany him as his disciple and to learn from him. That's what he is expressing. Now, again, we're not told a lot about this particular scribe, and so we, we have to be very careful when we're, we're trying to um, assign motives um, to people. So we don't know for certain what his motives were in, in coming to Jesus and wanting to be his disciple. However, based on Jesus' response that we get in the next verse, it does seem that his desire for discipleship was motivated by ambition. The, the popularity of Jesus, the crowd's that he had amassed that were following and kept on following him seems to have been something appealing to this scribe. But again, I'm just basing that on Jesus' response to him. So let's look at that response in verse number 20. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, 
but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, Jesus' response is a little bit puzzling. Um, It does seem to be in line of the cost of discipleship. I mean, even, even just a superficial reading seems to be that Jesus is telling this scribe, who would be Jesus' disciple, that this is not an easy road. Seems at least that he's saying that much. He states very simply that foxes and birds have their own homes or dwelling places, you could say, places of comfort and security that he did not have. He didn't have anything like that. He lived at a standard lower than insignificant creatures of the creation. Now, even though the, the statement, again, it's, it is somewhat enigmatic, but it's plain that Jesus informed this would-be disciple that following him in this present age is not the path to health, wealth, prosperity, and prestige. But how does that square with the good news of the kingdom? that Jesus was proclaiming. Remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 as he talked about the beginning of of Jesus' public ministry and how he went everywhere preaching the good news of the kingdom. I mean, the kingdom being near should have been a message of joy, something to celebrate. And the blessings of the kingdom that were described by the prophets didn't sound anything like this fox and bird business that Jesus gave to this scribe. So how, how do these things go together? Well, I think really to understand this statement, we need to understand this title that Jesus ascribed to himself, the Son of Man. But the Son of Man hath not where, hath not where to lay his head. What does it mean to follow the Son of Man? Well, this is the first occurrence in Matthew of this particular title, Son of Man. It is, it is the most common title Um, that Jesus used and applied to himself, though he did refer to himself in in some other ways. Uh, It occurs here and then 29 other times in the rest of Matthew alone. If you add up all of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the Gospels, uh, it's a a, a title that's used 81 times. Again, almost always spoken by Jesus about himself and then sometimes maybe by someone quoting Jesus' words. Now, if you take the 30 occurrences in Matthew... You can categorize them in in three particular ways. So the first way, and it begins here, Jesus uses this title, uses this title of himself to speak of his work in earthly ministry. The second way that we see this title, Son of Man, used in Matthew, Jesus uses it to speak of his messianic sufferings, even leading to his death. And in the third way that Jesus uses this title in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses it to speak of his future coming in glory to establish his kingdom on the earth. And it's also interesting when you look at those those occurrences and where they fall in these categories, the first usage where Jesus is speaking most just of his um, earthly work and, and ministry um, is earlier 
in Matthew. We see, again, we see the first one here. It's, it's earlier in Matthew. And these references to um, his suffering and then to his um, future glory are much later in the Gospel of Matthew. So clearly, the Son of Man is a messianic title. But where does it come from? Well, the immediate reference is found in Daniel chapter number 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, in Daniel's prophecy, he tells of this present goyim age, the age of the nations. This, this is first depicted in chapter number 2 by the giant statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. If you know anything about the book of Daniel, you probably remember the dream about the giant statue with the head of gold and, and, and so on. Well, this giant statue had this head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet that were of iron mixed with clay. Now, this, gold, this giant statue depicted four major world kingdoms during this age of the nations, this age of the nations which began with the Babylonian captivity. When Jerusalem was destroyed um, in, in, the, in the 6th century B.C., they were carried away in, into Babylon. That's when this age of, this, of the nations began, which still continues um, to this day. So they depicted four major world kingdoms during this age of nations, the Babylonians, uh, the Medo-Persians, uh, the Greeks, and followed by the Romans. Now, these kingdoms and their derivatives would characterize this age of nations until the stone that was cut out without hands smashes and subdues all of the earth. Now, that's Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 7, we're getting a parallel um, to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 7, it begins with those four beasts that come up out of the sea. Again, same thing. It, it parallels the, the four kingdoms here. Instead of this statue, they're pictured as these four beasts that come out of, the, out of the sea. And then as you proceed in Daniel chapter number 7, we are given a scene in heaven, some, some vision of some future scene in heaven. And in that scene is seen the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God the Father. And he is on his throne in heaven. His, his seat of universal reign over this universe that he has created. His throne in heaven. And then the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days on his throne. And from the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man receives dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now, it says in, in Daniel 7 that this was one like the Son of Man. And, and the meaning of that simply is, is that he appeared as a human man. Some human man, it seems, is, is approaching the Ancient of Days upon his throne in heaven and is receiving this kingdom from him. Now, this title 
is certainly linked with humanity, son of, of man. But son of man receives authority. And then what happens? He defeats the kingdoms that are warring against Israel. And he will establish his kingdom on earth, which we are told, which will continue forever. And all nations of the earth will be subdued under his authority and will worship him. And by the way, that brings an end to the age of the nations. Now, because of this passage in Daniel, the Jews of of Jesus' day still interpreted this passage, this son of man, to be prophetic of the Messiah. So Jesus here ascribing this title to himself is making a public declaration of his Messiahship. And again, these are the sort of things that gets him in trouble as as the Pharisees and, and others become more and more offended by the things that he says about himself. Now Jesus here clearly connected this title, Son of Man, with this prophecy in Daniel chapter number 7 because in, in John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And notice this, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So clearly... Jesus connects this title with Daniel's prophecy and is here openly declaring that he is the Son of Man of Daniel's vision. He is the one who will receive the kingdom and who will come to establish it on the earth. But Daniel is not the first place, nor is it the only place in the Old Testament where this title is used. There are roots that go back further than the prophecy of Daniel. There are two particular expressions used in the Old Testament uh, that are translated son of man. One is um, barinas, which is actually Aramaic for son of man. That's the term that you find in Daniel chapter number 7. Son of of Enos, basically, is is what is being said. Enos, again, being the name of Adam's grandson, the son son of Seth. And this this is the phrase that Daniel uses. Uh, one that much more prevalent, though, is the Hebrew phrase Ben Adam, son of Adam. Um, this is this occurs many places. We've seen it a number of times in in the Psalms, uh, and we've talked about it there. Now, Enos, the the son of of Enos, Bar Enos, it, the it refers more to uh, that word itself refers more to weakness and humanity, while Adam refers more to the rain over the earth. Now both of those terms are actually used in Psalm number 8 which refers to the future crowned son of Adam ruling over the kingdom of the earth. And of course this takes us back to the early chapters of Genesis where a man was created and he was called Adam because he was taken out of Adama, taken out of the earth or out of the ground. He was given dominion over the kingdom of the earth, but he failed in that reign. But the second Adam, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the second Adam, or the son of Adam, son of man, is the one who is also the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. 
take dominion over the earth because he has received this authority from the Father in heaven. And this also follows his authoritative declaration to the centurion. What did he tell him? That nations would come from all over the earth in the kingdom to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that great messianic feast. So obviously, Son of Man is a messianic title that is related to his kingship, to his reign over the kingdom. And Jesus is preaching this message of the good news of the kingdom. Well, all of this sounds rather triumphant, doesn't it? And it is. But why then does Jesus refer to such humiliation in this passage then? Well, he does so because the coming of the kingdom was not immediate. And the path of suffering and death laid out before him and actually before all of his followers unto the end of this age. Now, this, of course, is connected to the mystery of the kingdom, which we're not dealing with in this passage, but we will get to um, later in Matthew. Let's go to the next part and encounter the next disciple, beginning there in verse number 21. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. So after Jesus had commanded to go to the other side, we had one disciple who, who said he would go anywhere. And now we have another disciple who said, um, I need to do some things first. There's some, there's some things I need to do before I go. And, and the implication would be, and then I'll go. Now, Matthew doesn't explain the exact meaning of this would-be disciple who said, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And if you look in commentaries, you're going to find um, all sorts of, of ideas about what this pertained to, all sorts of possibilities. Um, I, it does seem to have some reference to some sort of customary practice, some sort of cultural expectation. So it could be, that his father had recently died, and he is referring to the need to complete the year of mourning that had become customary in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, and as I understand it, it even continues in, in some, some forms of Judaism today um, in, in some other ways, though it, it was something that was never commanded in the Old Covenant itself. Um, it could also be a little more idiomatic. In other words, he, he could be sort of referencing his inheritance in a little more euphemistic way. So, in other words, his father was still alive, but he was saying he needed to return home until his father passed and he received his inheritance. And the implication was that then he would have the freedom to follow Jesus around and take his um, yoke of discipleship. Now, we don't know the precise reference here. In other words... Um, there are a few good possibilities as far as what the exact meaning of this phrase is. And we don't know the precise reference, but this is a case where despite the fact that there may be some sort of, of customary reference here that we don't know precisely, despite that fact, the point is clear. The point is clear when you read the passage in context. He wanted 
to delay following Jesus until some better time for him to do so. Now, it could certainly be the case also that this is just a simple, literal expression that this man's father had recently died and he needed to attend to his funeral and, and his burial and such. Now, uh, Jesus, again, Jesus' response really seems to make that possibility extremely unlikely um, it, uh, to me. Verse number 22, But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. So Jesus responds by commanding him to follow me. He added, let the dead bury the dead. Now again, there's a lot of different ideas about the precise meaning of, of this phrase. Well, whatever the intention was of this would-be disciple that, that came to Jesus and was going to follow but wanted to do some other things first, Whatever the intention of this saying that he gave, let me go and bury my father, Jesus certainly has picked up on it and, and certainly is playing on it in return by saying, essentially, let those without life attend to the things of death. Well, again, the point is clear. Following Jesus is not something that is optional. It's, it's not something that conforms to our convenience so that it's, it's flexible. Following Jesus is not something that can be done part-time, something that can be done sometimes and then cannot be done at other times. And we can sort of pick it up and lay it down and pick it up and, and lay it down whenever that, you know, we need it or want it or... Um, you know, it's urgency demands it or convenience uh, allows for it, whatever. Jesus' authority is once again emphasized as he is, what he's commanding is complete commitment. Not something to, to put off, not, not something to sort of work in among other things that uh, may be going on in, in, in life. No, total commitment to him. So as we think about this brief exchange between Jesus and these would-be disciples, we see once again how that Matthew continues to reveal the identity of Jesus as Messiah, continues to express his authority through his words and, and through his works. He's the king. And, and the kingdom is his. And following him is not something that's done at our leisure. When it suits us, when we are down or when we have problems or when we have time and not much else to do. And really when you, when you think about it, it reflects a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Now again, we think back to the centurion. The centurion expressed a remarkable understanding of who Jesus is, so much so that it says Jesus marveled and said he had not found such great faith in Israel. He had not found those in, in, in Israel who had such a good understanding of who he is as what this centurion expressed. And then we meet with these two disciples who clearly don't fully understand who Jesus is. 
So it should lead us to ask, who is this man? What kind of man is this that he can command with words? We've seen the calling of of Peter and Andrew and and James and John. What kind of man goes about and, and simply tells other men to just drop their work on the spot and, and, and to come and follow me. Just lay down your livelihood and come and follow me. He tells these would-be disciples, this is, a, this is a hard and a difficult way. This present age is one that is marked by suffering. Remember how that um, Paul, when he was on his, I believe it was his second missionary journey as he um, exhorted how that, that through much tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Through much trials, through much difficulties, much, much pain and sorrow and even death. So it should lead us to ask, who is this man? What kind of man is this? I mean, he has unrivaled power seeming to command everyone and everything. And do we understand who it is that we are supposed to be following? Because again, he calls for complete commitment. There's no such thing as a part-time disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower, a believer, a Christian, however that you want to put it. Well, I'm afraid that many today don't really understand who he is. Jesus is is someone to be modified and trimmed and adjusted to fit with whatever notions it it is that, that I have, whatever it is that I think he should be like, whatever it is that I think he should say and do, rather than what he has actually said and done. Well, obviously, we see the importance of following Jesus and understanding who he is. And that really is a good thought. Who is this man? What kind of man is this? And that actually comes up in the very next passage. Thank you.